0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Deadly spiders, species going extinct and recovering from horrible burns. That's right, we sort of take a look at the strangest side of science this week, where we find out about the way... Frankenstein informs us about ecosystems and survival, with fear about spiders and their deadly venoms, as well as finding out about some new research to help patients with dangerous burns. A giant creature with amazing strength, brutish level of intelligence, composed entirely of mixed-up body parts sewn together, may be imbibed with some type of life force or electricity. And telling a great story about the folly of man's creativity and search for science and truth is the central premise of the 1818 novel by Mary Shelley, Frankenstein, which tells the story of Dr. Victor Frankenstein and his work to create a creature, then later pursuit and life's journey to try and undo the mess caused by his creature. Now that creature... Commonly, or monster, or demon, or wretch, is often colloquially known as Frankenstein, but it's actually just the creature. Victor Frankenstein is the actual scientist who has created this creature in the first place, though. There is a certain interpretation which suggests Victor Frankenstein is, in fact, indeed the monster for having created this monstrous being in the first place. Now, Mary Shelley's seminal work in 1818 predated most science fiction in fact many suggest that it was the foremost version of science fiction the first real novel that explored scientific progress and concepts and combined them by extending them further beyond the current reaches and imagined a future state and then explored the moral and sociological implications of this as well as the scientific speculative fiction involving science and the future. And that's what she did in 1818, well before any other people did. And it, it has rightfully earned its place as the centerpiece of the science fiction movement. Now, she had a lot of interesting science in there about galvanism and alchemy and a bunch of other science at the time that we would later become our molecular biology, chemistry and so on. She really combined those ideas in an accessible way. But one of the things that she did combine that now looking back at it is quite impressive is a really good and deep understanding of fundamental biological principles that weren't actually really formalised at the time. And that is the thesis of a paper re- recently published in the journal Bioscience by two scientists, Nathaniel Dominey and Justin D. Yacal from Dartmouth College and University of California. And their whole principal idea is that inside the novel Frankenstein there is actually a whole bunch of very very fascinating and complex biological science that predates a lot of the actual research in the field and they did a bit of modeling to back up their case the authors of this study actually looked at a pivotal scene inside the novel Frankenstein where the creature, encounters Dr Frankenstein Victor Frankenstein and complains about his uh his loneliness and that the creature desires a female companion and pointing out the creature pointing out that its dietary needs are different from those humans it expresses a willingness to inhabit the wilds of South America so perhaps an ecological niche as well required so specific diet specific ecological needs now Dr Frankenstein originally concedes to the reasoning given that you know it's far off in the middle of nowhere what does it matter And, you know, there's a few competitive interactions, very few interaction between this pair of species and, you know, humanity. But then he quickly reverses his decision after coming to the conclusion that the reproductive potential of this pair could very easily doom all of humanity, wiping them out, leading to extinction through a concept known as competitive exclusion. In essence, Dr. Frankenstein was saving humanity by not allowing this monster to go off with a pair and inhabit the wilds. Now, this idea of competitive exclusion is a biological theory about how, well, you know, one species' place could actually exclude from the other, even though they are living in a different area and have different needs. But that wasn't defined till the 1930s. Mary Shelley had a really good understanding of how this fundamental concept of ecology and biology would work, how a quickly and rapidly expanding population of creatures could drive humanity or another creature to extinction. She got that in 1818, well before a formalised theory was developed in 1930. And just to go into a bit more detail and prove this, the authors of this study actually went and built a model based on population densities in 1816. They Obviously, the competitive advantage of the different creatures varied under different circumstances, but in the worst-case scenario for humanity was a growing population of the creature, of the monster, in South America. It was a region where there was few humans, so therefore less competition for resources. So that with a founding population of two creatures, all things aside, that could drive us to extinction in as little as 4,000 years. Now, it's now obviously a thought experiment, and it goes on to show the whole principle of the horror of that novel, which is humanity being replaced going extinct. But actually, that science has a really good background and implications as well for our understanding of invasive species. Because invasive species have this same thing. You introduce two animals into a population and then they can wipe out, through the concept of competitive exclusion, other species in the area. You only have to look at rabbits or cane toads or another of the things in Australia to get a better understanding of that. And Mary Shelley got this, as well as the fundamentals of physiology and galvanism, like which is electrical animation of muscles, all the way in 1818. So truly, she wasn't just a very talented author, but just a very talented scientist that deserves full credit. And it goes to show that the story of Frankenstein has a lot to tell us about science and the dangers for small and isolated ecosystems and extinction, and as well as being a fantastic story. you're celebrating Halloween chances are there's some spider decorations around the place now that might be a giant spider hanging from your roof or maybe one that's over 12 feet long and lunges over your fence but that's one part of the celebrations of Halloween. If you live in Australia, you may not celebrate Halloween, but you live with spiders in your daily life. Some of them are harmless, like our lovely daddy longlegs, or huntsman spiders, which eat other bugs and really help us out. Others are more deadly, like the redback spider, which we obviously live in cautious fear of. Now, there's more than 46,000 species of spiders across the globe, and each one has a potential to produce a venom. And there are around 500 distinct different toxins produced by these spiders. And when you combine all those 500 different toxins in different amounts, scientists believe that there are around, conservatively, 22 million different types of spider venom. Now, that's scary and interesting, but why do we care? Well, aside from the fact that we want to know how to work with and prevent injury from spider venom, we actually also want to understand how the spider has managed to evolve such a complex web of different types of venom, because that can give us a lot of interesting research into the way to develop new medicines, as well as new anti-venoms and research tools. Now, there are many scientists across the world studying spider venom. For example, Greta Binford at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, and Jessica Garb at the University of Massachusetts Lowell but what these researchers are particularly looking at is the protein structures of the various venom chemicals. Try and get some clues as to why some are more lethal than others. Because a lot of spider venom, the vast majority in fact, thought to be relatively harmless. So why are some so super lethal? And the clues to this lie in using molecular biology. Now, by using molecular biology, the scientists are actually studying the genomes and comparing the spiders that have extremely noxious venoms, including the black widow and the brown recluse, to those that are non poisonous spiders, such as the common house spider types. By comparing the, the genomes of these different spiders, we can look at how they've actually separated and evolved. Because once we understand a bit more about how the different types of venoms evolved, we can understand how you actually develop a different mechanism to counter that besides you also need to study in detail the actual pathway and damage that a venom does for example one of the most deadly types of spiders on the world from the genus sicarius um they actually have a toxin which is which is also found say, the brown recluse now when they bite the this the venom itself uh literally bursts the cells nearby the bite area like balloons which means that whole swathes of tissue dies if the toxin gets into the bloodstream then it also rips apart red blood cells and damages arteries and veins that carry them eventually there's so much damage to both the tissue and the blood cells that you actually end up with clotting and hemorrhaging throughout the body which leads to strokes aneurysms and heart attacks now, that's, that's very interesting to understand why the, those particular chemical reactions are occurring there, because then you can begin to counter it and develop antivenoms. But it also helps us understand how these mechanisms in, inside our body work to transfer these, these types of toxins. So somebody has to study these spiders, because if we don't, we don't understand how to treat them, but also understand about our body's physiological response to them. And it might be a bit scary, but it is important research being done. Now, in the novel Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein composes his monster made up of cadavers and other things from the slaughterhouse, use the official terminology. And one of the interesting parts about that study of piecing together a human from other, th- other pieces actually has a lot of current implication to, say, burn treatment. Now, I'm not saying we use actual cadavers for burns treatments, but in order to treat someone who has burns, we do need to take skin grafts. And a full thickness skin graft is pretty much the gold standard for treating burn wounds. And for that, you need a donor. And for a large or complicated injury site, trying to get a full thickness skin graft, it's really, really hard. And so a number of researchers from Michigan Tech University have been looking at ways to try and treat burns using skin grafts with split thickness skin grafts, which they call STSG, that uses tissue from a patient as well as stem cells to try and cover the burn area and help lead to a recovery. Now, this is a joint project with researchers from Michigan Tech and the first affiliated hospital of Sun Yat-sen University in Guangzhou, China. And it's really to study ways to improve the skin graft process. Now, the idea is to maximize the burn area covered by using specifically engineered stem cell-related tissue that also best uses the body's natural healing powers. So, effectively, what you do is you take this split thickness skin graft. And you build a specifically engineered sheet of stem cells. And by pairing these two together, you actually get a bit of a jump start to the healing process. Now, the Feng Zhao, an associate professor of biomedical engineering at Michigan Tech, actually works in creating engineered tissues that are pre-vascularized. That means they have some of the blood veins through them. Which means that they have a jump start for actually making the veins and capillary and lymphatic drainage network that you need to actually have healthy and living skin that becomes a basis so that you have a favorable condition to actually apply the split thickness skin graft it's a bit a good frame a good ha- a good garden bed for this skin graft to grow on now to help prevent graft contraction and encourage the stabilization of the vascular network zhao and team actually turned to stem cells which also are pre vascularized to help improve the blood network development they actually combined this stem cell sheet which is prevascularized, with the split thickness skin grafts in rats to see if there actually is an improvement. And the results actually showed less contraction and puckered skin, less cellular inflammation, and a thinner epidermal thickness, along with more robust blood flow, which is due to the prevascularized nature of this stem cell basis. They also managed to preserve features like hair follicles and oil glands. Now, the important part here the researchers developed is actually the vascularized stem cell sheets because that means that the blood networks have favorable conditions for the rest of the skin to sort of inhabit and grow on. Now, soon, hopefully, this means that we can take partial skin grafts from patients, a nice stem cell layer, so that when you replant these split thickness skin grafts, you actually have a very, very good area for the burns to regrow and heal on. Now, at the moment, stem cell sheets are very fragile and difficult to work with but if we can improve the mechanical properties of these sheets and find ways to harvest these cells more easily it can lead to a great treatment for patients suffering from burns this has been the young scientists of australia's podcast this week we found out about the novel Frankenstein teaches about invasive species and ecosystems plus we found out about dangerous spider venoms and how we can learn from them as well as new treatments to help patients with burns our ending theme was composed by Audio Anatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.